In Zechariah, we have been seeing the path to restoration. The city of Jerusalem and the temple that was in the heart of Jerusalem lay in ruins. But more than just the physical restoration of a temple and a city, there is the spiritual restoration that needed to take place in the hearts and the lives of the people of God. As we come to Zechariah chapters 3 and 4, we find the Word of God addressing two issues, rescue from sin and righteousness that we receive from God. What a blessing this passage is. It shares with us how God can take imperfect people and use them for his purpose. So there's hope for all of us as we look into this text. Think of the imperfect people that God has used throughout history. When we read the scripture, story after story of individuals who had their flaws, who made horrible decisions, but yet God redeemed them and used them. And they were mighty servants of his purpose. Unless we look back and point our fingers at them, like the old saying goes, when you point your finger, you have three pointing back. Well, that's true of us as well, isn't it? When we look to ourselves, we can see our imperfections. We can see our shortcomings. But isn't it great that God overcomes all of this? When we look in Zechariah chapter 3, we are continuing visions that Zechariah received. And what we find in this vision is the beautiful picture of the forgiveness of sin and the rescue from sin that one of the leaders of Israel during the time in which Zechariah lived, Joshua, the high priest. What we're seeing is the rescue from sin that is provided by God for him. Look at this third chapter, starting at the first verse, and we first of all see a scene that is mentioned a few times in Scripture. Satan coming before God, bringing accusations against the followers of God. Look at this vision and we find in verses 1 and 2 a courtroom scene, if you will, with the angel of the Lord, with Joshua, the accused, and with Satan, the accuser. Look at what it says. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, And Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. Now, the scene, the picture here, would have been what would take place in the court area of the temple if there were one. In the temple, people would bring accusations against those who had sinned. And there would be one who was the accuser. And then there would be the high priest who would stand as judge. We saw this with Jesus when accusation was made against him. And so that's the picture of what we see here. The high priest, Joshua, is being accused by Satan. You know, when we look through Scripture, as I said earlier, we find Satan, that's kind of his job description. He is the accuser of the saints. In fact, in the book of Revelation, it says this, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God, And the authority of his Christ for the accuser of the brothers 
who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Now we know that that accuser of the brothers, he's identified there in that 12th chapter as that ancient serpent, Satan. So here is this picture. Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord, whom we identified last time we were together as none other than Christ before he took on flesh. He's being accused by Satan the accuser. And here's the thing. Satan is a liar, but he doesn't need to lie when it comes to our sin, does he? He can be truthful when he talks about our sin because all of us sin. We all fall short of the glory of God, we're told in Scripture. And so that's what he's doing, bringing the offenses before God. Isn't it amazing how Satan loves to point out sin in other people when it serves his purposes? He'll point it out to us after we've confessed it and repented and forsaken the sin, but keeps bringing it up, constantly reminding us of how unworthy we are to come before God. And that unworthiness can be something that beats us down and keeps us from coming to God. He also brings it up before God himself. He's constantly before the throne of God accusing us But I'm so thankful that we have one who speaks on our behalf, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. When we look in this text, this accusation is made against Joshua, but it doesn't stop there. It goes on to talk about how this scene shifts. And rather than the angel of the Lord rebuking Joshua... What does he do? Look at the second verse. Then the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? What beautiful language we find in this. While Satan would hope that Joshua would be rebuked by the Lord, It is Satan himself who is rebuked. And he's rebuked because God retains a covenant relationship with Jerusalem. And not just Jerusalem, but the entire people. When the scripture uses the term Jerusalem in this text, it's very much like what we'll hear in our day when someone says, Washington said. It's representative of our entire nation. So here, Jerusalem is representative of the nation of God's people. And what God is reminding Satan of is this. I will not cut off my people. I have a special covenant relationship with my people. And yes, they sin, but you will not drive a wedge between me and my people. Isn't that so hopeful for us? When we sin, we have a loving, forgiving God who has chosen to have a relationship with us. It's a blessing that God cares about us and keeps that care dependent on his faithfulness, not on the faithfulness of his people. 
God is an amazing God. And look at how the people of God are described as a stick snatched from the fire. Were they deserving of being destroyed because of their sin? Absolutely. But God in his grace delivers his people from their sin because God is a God of grace. Now this pictures Jerusalem being delivered from the Babylonians who had come in and destroyed all of Jerusalem. God is set upon rebuilding Jerusalem, but not just the city. He's set on rebuilding his people. And as I look at this, I see a picture not only of God's grace to Israel in this text, but God's grace to us all. Couldn't we all view ourselves as sticks that are plucked from the fire? Because of our sin, we deserve to be separated from a holy God. But in his grace, God reaches out to us and plucks us from the fire. It's a humbling picture. But it's rich in beauty because of the grace of God. But the text goes on. In this vision, Zechariah goes on to see how God removes our sin. Look with me at the third verse. In the third verse, it says, Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. Now, the language that is used here in the NIV is somewhat cleaned up. When the scripture says Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes, in order to take the offense of what the original Hebrew says, they use the word filthy. Not to be crass or gross, but to give you a picture of just how filthy they were. They would have been excrement-covered clothes. Now, that's unthinkable for a high priest. The law had very specific rules about cleanliness and the clothing of the high priest. But here before God is a man who stands in offensive clothes to a holy God. You know, sometimes I think we look at our sin and we think it's not really that significant. But in Scripture, it's described in a way that in that culture, it would have been the most offensive, vile picture that they could imagine to have this priest standing before Almighty God in clothing that is covered by excrement. But that's the picture. That's what the vision shows. You see, here is Almighty God in relationship with the high priest, Joshua, representative of all the people of Israel, by the way. Remember, the high priest's role is to represent the people to God, but it's also to represent God to the people So he is symbolizing all of Israel. And what it's saying is this. 
Yes, the sin that Satan brought up in verses 1 and 2 is very real. But God has a solution to change the clothes. You see, Joshua didn't remain in this state of filth. God changes his clothes. Look carefully at that third and fourth verse. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel, and the angel said to those standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Now, one of the reasons that we believe that the angel of the Lord is Jesus Christ before he came in the flesh in the manger is because of what transpires. Look at what he says to Joshua. See, I have taken away your sin and will put rich garments on you. No angel can forgive sin. Only God. So what we find in this vision is the pre-incarnate Christ, Christ before he took on human flesh in the manger, and he sees the sin of his people, and he says, take away the sin, put on clean clothes, I have forgiven your sin. This branch that was snatched from the fire is snatched because God makes a solution for his sin. And we experience the same thing. The Lord Jesus Christ brings forgiveness to us. We experience what it is to have God Almighty forgive our sins and take them away. And notice in this text, verse 4 It was because of the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ, before he came in the flesh. We experience because we live after Jesus Christ came in the flesh. And he died on the cross to take away our sin. But here's the amazing thing about Jesus. Whether you're Old Testament or New Testament, Jesus is the solution for sin. In the book of Romans, Paul talking about the crucifixion of Christ as death, burial, and resurrection, says this, God presented him, referring to Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time. Now look at this last part. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. The central event of the Bible is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ that takes away our sin and opens the way for us to have a relationship with Almighty God. And right here in this vision... The Word of God is touching on this important truth. Now, look at what else we find in verse 5. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. Here's the angel of the Lord standing by 
Joshua, representing the people of God, cleansing him from head to toe with clean garments. When Christ cleanses us, he does a complete job, head to toe. We're cleansed. We're right before God. But then the story or the vision doesn't end there. We find that Joshua would be restored to service. Look at verse 6. At verse 6, it says, The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you a place among these standing here. Now, historically, what's taking place is this. Foundation for the temple had been laid. They were getting ready to set about the work of erecting the walls and completing the temple. Very soon, Joshua's role as high priest would be required of him to step in and serve in the temple. But here's what we must understand. In order to serve in the temple, Joshua had to be right with God. He had to be cleansed so that he could walk in the way that God wanted him to walk. What a picture of our lives. None of us can reform ourselves. None of us can say, I'm going to do better. Oh, we might succeed for a moment, but we always return to who we were and what we were before because the filth of our clothing defiles us. It takes God's cleansing to change the path that we follow. For Joshua, the high priest, for the people of God, it wasn't enough that they go back to building the temple and then set about the work of going through the motions of doing all of the service of the temple. There had to be cleansing. You see, before the temple was taken down, they had a temple. They had servants in the temple, but the servants in the temple were corrupt. As this new temple becomes the place of worship for the children of Israel and the children of God, God is saying, prepare yourself. Make it different this time. Continue in the cleansing that I provide for you. And then we come to verse 8. In verse 8, we see God reveal his plan of salvation. And to me, this is one of the most exciting parts of the entire text. What we find in verses 8 through the end of the third chapter, verse 10, is a picture of the coming Messiah. And he's pictured in three ways, as a servant, as a branch, and as a stone. So let's look at these pictures of the coming Messiah And notice the important statement that verse 8 makes. Listen, O high priest Joshua, and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. This vision isn't just about Joshua. It isn't just about those who are accompanying him and serving in the temple. This vision is about things to come. And those things to come involve the Messiah, 
who Dan pointed out during our worship time together. That is the anointed one, the chosen one of God. The one that God sets to accomplish his purpose and his plan. The ultimate anointed one, the Christ, is the man who was God and took on human flesh and lived among us. He is Jesus. And so, when he is described in this text, he is first of all described as the branch, or excuse me, the servant. Look at verse 8. Listen, O Joshua, high priest, your associates seated, who are men symbolic of things to come, I am going to bring my servant, the branch. Now, verse 8 contains two of the titles. The first title is servant. And when we look through the scripture, we find that the Messiah is the ultimate servant of God. As a matter of fact, when we look in the Gospels, Mark identifies Jesus as the servant of God. And he pictures him as the servant of God throughout his gospel. One of the key passages that we find is Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Look in your outlines and you'll see it. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the ultimate servant of God. He fulfills this prophecy that Zechariah brings out, but he's also the branch. Now, when we look in this text and we find that Jesus is the branch, what does it mean? When we look in the Old Testament, there are many passages that speak of the coming Messiah as the branch. Often, it's associated by being the branch of David, who had been king over Israel, And what it shares with us is that when Messiah comes, he will be king over Israel. And we know that when Jesus returns, he will fulfill that position. He already is king, but he will experience that position in its fullness upon his return. Again, in your outline, Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5 says this. The days are coming, declares the Lord when I will raise up David, a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. So this is the promise that we find in Jeremiah. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David, a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. Oh, how we look forward to that. When we look around our world and we see the injustice and the futility of trying to hold on to what is right, we wonder, will will there ever come a time when right is rewarded and when wrong is dealt with? We have a king who is coming who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land, and that is our Messiah. Then look at verse 9. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on the stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. 
Wow. Picture of a stone. Again, a stone is referred to in many passages in the Old Testament as the coming Messiah, the anointed one of God, the promised one. The seven eyes on the stone sounds a little freaky to us. But what it's communicating is the idea that all-seeing, all-knowing. So this isn't a normal stone. There's something special about this stone. This stone has the ability to see everything. And that's because this stone is both man and God, Jesus Christ. Look at what the stone does. The stone removes the sin of this land in a single day. That's the power of this stone, to deal with sin. Peter speaks of the stone by quoting the 118th Psalm. And he says this, Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message which is also what they were destined for. Jesus Christ is the stone that brings transformation, change, that takes away sin in a day. That's our Messiah. Then look at the 10th verse. Because of the coming Messiah, it says in that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. We have a coming Messiah who will change the world and bring peace to this world. The imagery of sitting under the vine or the fig tree is the peace that the Prince of Peace will bring into our world. And throughout my life, I have heard of peace talk after peace talk after peace talk. And none of them accomplish anything. When Jesus Christ returns, the stone, the branch, the servant, he will see to peace in our world. And folks, that is the only way that we'll ever find peace. There's not a political solution. The only solution to bringing peace into our world is Jesus Christ. And that's what Zechariah brings out with crystal clarity. In this vision. But then we come to the fourth chapter. And as we come to the fourth chapter, we see another vision. Now take heart. This one isn't quite as long as chapter three. But it's picturing for us again God's usage of a servant. And in this case, the servant is Zerubbabel. Now, I'm sure all of you are sitting there saying, oh, Zerubbabel. Let's refresh our memories on who Zerubbabel is. Joshua had the role of being a spiritual leader, the high priest. Zerubbabel had the role of being a political leader, a king. So what we see pictured in these visions is, first of all, a priest, and secondly, a king. Guess who also ultimately fulfills those roles? Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate priest, And functions as our high priest even now, we're told in the book of Hebrews. He is the king and he is a prophet. So he is prophet, priest, and king. 
So here in this vision, first of all, the high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ would be able to forgive sin as the ultimate high priest. And now as we come to chapter 4, we find that he is there to lead his people. We find that he will lead them in righteousness to where they will live rightly. And what we find is, first of all, the resource for living is God's Spirit. This chapter contains one of my favorite verses in all of Zechariah and perhaps even in all of the Old Testament. So let's get to it. There's a vision where it says in verse 1, Then the angel who talked with me returned and wakened me, as a man is wakened from his sleep, and he asked me, What do you see? And I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl on the top and seven lights and seven channels to the lights. Also, there are two olive trees on it, one on the right of the bowl and one on the other, its left. Now, here's the picture. Within the temple, there were lampstands. It was a stand that had a candle that went straight up, and then there were candles, or excuse me, lamps more accurately, that were off from that center candle. So there were seven lights in all. The vision pictures this, and what the high priest would have to do is daily attend to the lampstand because he would have to replenish the oil in each one of the seven lamps. That was part of his responsibility in carrying on the work of being a priest in the temple of God. But this vision has something different. Rather than having to go and replenish each one of those lamps, there is a bowl at the top of this lampstand containing the oil that would go to each one of the lamps. And then there are seven channels that flow to each one of the lamps, 49 channels in all. The imagery is that of constant supply. The purpose of the lampstand was to light the temple. And the imagery is that of Israel, which had the responsibility to light the world. We have that same responsibility to bring light into this dark world. And so the picture here is a continual supply because not only do you have the bull, but you have two olive trees on either side of the bull and a branch that goes to the bull that siphons oil into this bull on a continual basis. In other words, the light would not be shut down. Now, when we go on in this text, after this description, verse 4 says this, I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And he answered, do you not know what these are? No, I replied. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. So here is a message to this king. And he had the responsibility of leading 50,000 people to rebuild the temple of God. And here's my favorite verse. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Isn't that a great verse? 
Listen, Zerubbabel wasn't going to succeed because he was a wonderful king. As good as he was, that wouldn't be the route to success. Zerubbabel would succeed as he depended on the resources of God. And you know that same truth is amplified in the New Testament. Without the Spirit of God and depending on His work in us, it's impossible, impossible for us to accomplish anything for God. In the vision, the oil that is pictured that supplies all of the light and all of the things that are going on, often oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And so what verse 6 does is identify for us what he's talking about. The Spirit of God, the anointing of the Spirit of God would see to the work that Zerubbabel had to accomplish. Important work. Rebuilding the temple of God, the center of worship. The place where the people of God would praise their God. And so the text continues. And it says in the seventh verse, What are you, O mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it. God bless it. You know what he's saying? Zerubbabel, you're going to complete the temple. And nothing is going to stand in your way. Now put this in context. Zerubbabel had opposition. He had opposition from the surrounding communities. He had opposition from his own people. And what God was encouraging Zerubbabel with is this. Look, don't look at the opposition. Look at your resources. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. And man, is there a message in that for us. It is the Spirit of God that gives the people of God the ability to accomplish the things of God. Pure and simple. As we draw upon his strength and his resources, we find success in what God calls us to do. And so that message that is given here to Zerubbabel is given to all of us in a very real way. We should seek that resource of the Spirit of God. Then, look at how the Word of God goes on to talk about how they would reflect glory upon the Lord Almighty. Verse 8. Then the Word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Now, look at the last part of that ninth verse. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. By the success of dependence on the Spirit of God, what the Word of God is telling us is it is a light, it is a testimony to the world that God is at work among His people. When Zerubbabel would erect the temple, when they would reestablish the important worship system that God had put into place, it was a light, it was a testimony that would reflect on the glory of the Lord Almighty. Look at verse 10. 
Men, or excuse me, who despises the day of small things, men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range throughout the earth. Now, what it's saying in this text is very clear, first of all, in the 10th verse. That often when people see small starts, like the laying of the foundation of the temple, they look and they say, this will never get completed. We're done. There's no hope. We're just not going to complete what we set out to do. Critics, complainers, they come along and they despise the start. But what the word of God goes on to say is this, look, Zerubbabel, be faithful. Take the plumb line in hand and set about the task of rebuilding. Now, those of you who don't do a lot of construction, you know what a plumb line is? It's a string with a weight on the end of it. And you put it up next to a wall to make sure that the wall is parallel to the string, meaning that the wall is straight. What it's saying to Zerubbabel is this. Go about the task of rebuilding. Do what God has called you to do. And let the naysayers and those who despise small things do their own thing. You be faithful. Such clear words for all of us. Don't you find that when you set out to do work and ministry, that there are always those that stand on the side and say, it won't work. Tried that once and it didn't work. They love to shoot down the work of God and the work of ministry, and it's easy to become discouraged. But remember, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. Zerubbabel had to reflect on the resource And as he was faithful to obey what God called him to do, the people around him would rejoice and join in. See, a leader has to lead. They have to take that position of obedience and persuade others to come along with them as they follow the call of God. We need to be Zerubbabel's and stay the course and serve in the resources of God. Now, the seven eyes of the Lord, which range throughout the earth, we're not quite sure what that refers to, whether that goes back to the seven eyes on the stone or whether it goes back to the seven lamps. But what we do know is this. It's a reference to God's ever-presence, all knowledge. It's a demonstration of God's power. Finally, verses 11 through 14, we receive God's anointing to serve. Remember the two olive trees in our vision. You have the lampstand in the middle. You have the branches that go to the lampstand. And there are two trees on either side. So it says in verse 11, I ask, what are these two olive trees on the lamp right and left of the lampstand? Again, I ask, what are the two olive branches beside the two gold pipes that pour out golden oil? And he replied, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord. Then verse 14, he said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. You know who the two olive trees were? 
that God would use through which the oil would flow into the whole process? Joshua and Zerubbabel. They were anointed of God to serve. They were called upon to do the work of God, and by their faithfulness in following God, God would work through these choice servants. God takes people, imperfect people, and does amazing things. Now, we also know that as priest and king, these two are symbolic of one who is coming, who is the ultimate anointed one, and that is Jesus Christ. He cleanses people and gives them the opportunity to light the way in a dark world to God and bring glory to him. But he's coming again. And he's going to establish his kingdom on earth. And he will be the one through which the oil of God flows into the lives of his people. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the reminder that it is to us all. That is not by might, not by strength, but by your power. Thank you for the cleansing that you give us. We thank you that you take away our filthy clothes and you give us clean ones. Because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, we have that complete cleansing. God, bless the word to our hearts today. Give us hope. Give us dependence on you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.